Welcome to this week's energy show. Now, sometimes I wake up in the middle of the night, not a real nightmare. I just worry about external issues affecting our solar and storage industry. I mean, many of you also may wake up in the middle of the night with those concerns. For me, kind of boring, but I worry about the solar and the storage industry. Now, part of the challenge is the solar industry is characterized by something we call the solar coaster. There's just lots of ups and downs in this industry. You know, you know, I'm thinking back way over 40 years. Now, the ups are usually somewhat expected events. I mean, things are getting better from the standpoint of our industry's clean energy solution, solar and storage, to really solve problems that are plaguing the world, global warming, right? And we can plan for many of these ups. We can plan for tax credits and incentives becoming available. And we, we, don't, we don't only plan, we actually lobby for them and we know when they're coming. So we know about the tax credits. It's not a huge issue right now. They're stable for a couple of years. Unfortunately, we also can count on the fact that the electric grid is going to continue to be unreliable, particularly here in California. There's weather issues, there's fires, there's just incompetence of the, the companies that are managing the grid. And the other thing that we can really count on almost as much as the sun going up is that electric rates are going to continue to go up. It's staggering to me when I think about the fact that PG&E rates went up 11% this year already. They're looking at huge future increases because they're going to bury 10,000 miles of power lines at a cost of $30 billion plus, plus all the maintenance. So electricity rates are going to continue to go up. You know, Just kind of looking at the way the numbers are going, we're going to be over a dollar a kilowatt hour in about six or seven years. Now, we can't always plan for these solar coaster downs when the industry plummets, when something happens. Very unexpected, usually from left field. Sometimes people call them a black swan event. I'm just thinking back over 40 years ago, there was the solar tax credit that Jimmy Carter put in place in the 70s. And when President Reagan came in, oil prices went down. He eliminated the solar tax credit. He took the solar panels off the White House. A little bit more recently, in 2004, the solar industry was growing really fast costs for solar panels were coming down. And then because the industry was growing so fast, there was a shortage of refined silicon. Called it the silicon crisis of 2004. And immediately prices for everything went up like 30 or 40%. And that was a huge shock. So we used to pay $2.60 for solar panels and boom, in one week they went up to $3.75. It was really, really tough to get through that. Our biggest cost went through the roof. A little bit more recently, the housing crisis and the recession in 2007 really caused the solar industry to kind of grind to a halt for a while until some clever financing techniques came up. And then, you know, a little bit more recently, the solar tariffs went into place in 2012. So there's tariffs on solar cells, solar panels, components that are coming from overseas. And there's a lot of talk about those tariffs being continued and even expanded in the U.S., which fundamentally, I think it's a good idea for us to manufacture product here. The thing is that you got to make sure that you can manufacture all of the product. And that takes long-term investments. Building a silicon refining and solar cell manufacturing facility, it costs like 3 or $4 billion. It's going to take five years to put into effect. And most businesses in the U.S. don't have time frames that are going to allow them to plan that long. And they're not confident that the politicians are going to put in programs in place that are going to last for when these new investments materialize. So there's issues with made-in-the-USA products. We just don't have the supply chain. And now, 2021... We're dealing with the remnants, hopefully, of the COVID crisis. The COVID pandemic really slowed things down quite a bit in 2020, and things started to heat up again. And here we are in August, September of 2021, and it's a little bit uncertain again. So those are some of the ups and downs that are endemic to the solar industry. But looking at things that are 
more specific, things that sometimes a solar company and a storage company can do something about. These are the things that I worry about at night because I try and take out of my mind the things that I can't have any impact over. And I worry about the things that I, if I act, if I make some changes, I can have an impact on. So number one, keeping our employees safe. The most dangerous thing in the solar industry are falls from the roof. That's the biggest hazard. And we're the only contractor I know that has a policy to install permanent roof anchors for harnesses on every single project. Now, OSHA requires the installation of roof anchors and harnesses, but they don't require them to be permanent. And we came to the conclusion that if we put in temporary roof anchors, we're going to take them out, potential for a little bit of a leak there. But then if there's ever any maintenance required on the system, it's unlikely the team, the contractor, would put anchors in again. So we put in permanent roof anchors along the ridge of the roof on every roof plane. And that just kind of really helps. And our crews are required to use harnesses on rooftops. Ladders are always secured. But I worry about our employees following these procedures. So people that are periodically auditing jobs, including myself going to a job on a surprise. Hey, are you tied in? If not, get down the roof and tie in. So there's falls. The other big danger is electrical shocks. We just follow typical electrician practices, making sure we have protective gear, make sure circuits are off, make sure that they're locked out so that people working on areas that could be live aren't accidentally re-energized. So we do our best to follow OSHA procedures, but you know, still, it's, it's something that I worry about. All right, the next thing that keeps me up at night, and this is probably the biggest one, because some stuff we can do about it, there's some things, but it's just a really, really big battle. The biggest thing that worries me are continued and accelerating utility efforts to kill rooftop solar and storage. They're not trying to kill all solar and storage. Solar and storage is great. Utilities will tell you that. Solar and storage is great if the solar is owned or managed by the utility, and if they own the batteries. They actually get A, to get the revenue on it, and B, they count those as assets. But they fight tooth and claw with enormous amounts of money against customers putting in their own solar and battery storage systems. Why? Because it has an impact on the utility profits. Like any business, if your customers can suddenly get your product for less money and better service if they don't get it from you, you've got a problem. And so utilities are in that boat except for one little thing. The fact is that they're monopolies. So they get the government right to be the sole provider and they're very poorly regulated monopolies. So the Public Utility Commission really does very, very little to make sure that they're doing the right thing. And, you know, here's the thing. Talk to any solar customer. When you have solar, you no longer need to buy as much electricity or any at all from the utility. I mean, heck, my bill last year was negative $500. I got a check from San Jose. It was great. And when you have a battery, you can also avoid paying rip-off prices, three-time higher electric rates when you really need the electricity in the evening or late afternoon from 4 to 9 p.m. So battery allows you to charge up that battery with solar. You kind of coast through. You don't have to buy a penny from the utility when the prices are the highest. And you get backup power for when the utility fails. So a quick lesson in utility economics, and, and this lesson was given to me by a former PG&E CEO, because people just don't understand how this works. So utilities generate their profits. These are investor-owned utilities like PG&E, Southern California, Edison, San Diego Gas and Electric. They generate their profits based on their net assets. Now, what are the assets? The assets are power lines, substations, buildings, vehicles, solar farms in the desert, everything like that. It's the stuff that they build. The more assets they have, the more profits they get. 
And they're a government monopoly, so the PUC is supposed to look at this, but they do a crummy job. The Public Utility Commission gives the utilities a guaranteed 10% rate of return on their net assets every year. So if PG&E has $20 billion of assets, they automatically get a $2 billion profit. I don't happen to remember what the numbers are currently with PG&E, but those assets are solid. It's not their revenues. It's not their income. It's their assets. So when they go bankrupt, they keep those assets. And that's why they're continuing to hang in there. And to make it worse, and this may make a little bit of sense as to why they're burying transmission lines, the Public Utilities Commission gives the utilities a 12% rate of return for 50 years on long-distance transmission lines. Let's just do the quick math here. Let's see. They just announced that PG&E is going to put in 10,000 miles of long-distance transmission lines. And I kind of looked through some of the reports. The last time they did this, they said it's going to cost about $3 million per mile to bury these transmission lines. These were old costs. They'll go up. So just kind of running the numbers there, that's a $30 billion investment for long-distance transmission lines on which they will get a guaranteed rate of return of 12%. So $3.6 billion for 50 years, they're automatically going to get a rate of return on all those power lines that they're going to say that they're going to bury over 10 years. And obviously, they're going to charge the customers for all that work, and they're going to get a huge rate of return, and they're going to have to maintain those, maybe not as much as trimming trees, but that's going to require maintenance. And so what happened, Public Utilities Commission historically gives the utilities carte blanche to raise rates while continuing to provide lousy service, burning down cities, gold-plated executive salaries, and permission to go bankrupt and come out just as good as before. So, you know, hey, put yourselves in the utility executive shoes. Not a bad job if you can get it. You want to maximize the utility assets and minimize customers generating their own power. That's why the utilities are fighting so hard against you, homeowners and businesses, from putting in your own batteries in the solar system. So this year, this year, 2021, we're facing a triple threat from PG&E and other utilities. And this is what keeps me up at night. First, legislation that would cut the net energy metering reimbursement rates and add fixed fees to all solar customers. Now, guess what? PG&E funded these efforts. Second, PG&E and their IBEW, the International Brotherhood of Electrical Workers Union, are trying to change permanently the California labor codes that would disallow currently highly trained solar and storage workforce. So basically, they're trying to make it so that only union electricians can put in solar and storage. Now, heck, you know what? Union electricians do really good work but they're focused on doing big commercial utility projects, not working in your home, not doing residential wiring. They don't have a clue about how to configure a battery. Trust me. So bingo, by making this labor law change, the utilities will dramatically raise the cost for solar and storage contractors who are going to have to pay union wages for home and business installations. Plus, keep in mind, there are no... Not, not no, but yeah, tiny, tiny percentage, I would say fewer than 100 union electricians in the state of California that really are experienced with installing and configuring residential battery systems. They just don't exist because that's not what they make money doing. All right, so third, third thing that, that the utilities are doing is they're pushing to implement what's called net metering 3.0. Bit of history here. 
Net metering 1.0 started in 1995, and there was a 100% reimbursement rate for energy sent back to the grid. So during the day, when you're running your meter backwards, you got the full retail credit. Worked out great. Heck, I remember 2001, rates were 26 cents in the middle of the day. You were getting a 26 cent credit in the middle of the day. And then you were buying electricity down around 15 cents a kilowatt hour in the afternoon and evening because at the time there was plenty of electricity in the late afternoon and evening and not enough in the middle of the day when companies and businesses were cranking their air conditioning. All right, so that was net metering 1.0. Now, in 2014, the CPUC, at the urging of the utilities, started working on changes to net metering so that the utilities would maybe get a better deal. And they were successful in those negotiations. They got a lot of lobbying power. So in 2016, the CPUC implemented net metering 2.0, which wasn't a huge difference. Basically, the big change is instead of reimbursing customers for 100% of the retail rate, so if your rate was 25 cents, then you'd get 25 cents when you're running the meter backwards, they reimbursed the customers at about 95% of the rate. They kept a few pennies for themselves. And the reason is that there are certain fixed charges, non-bypassable charges is what they call them, that the utilities were obligated to pay for various reasons. And one of the reasons was to cover energy efficiency programs. I get it. <laughs> one of the big reasons, which I don't get, was that PG&E went bankrupt in 2001. So in order to cover PG&E's bankruptcy, for 20 years, electricity rates had an extra surcharge. It was some weird bond thing. They kind of concealed it. But this was basically to bail PG&E out of their first bankruptcy. So after 20 years in 2021, there's no longer a charge for PG&E's 2001 bankruptcy. Unfortunately, obviously, PG&E went bankrupt again a couple years ago, and now we've got another 20-year charge plus all kinds of other expenses. So anyway, the fundamental reduction in net metering 2.0, which was implemented in 2016, is that you didn't get full retail compensation for the power use impact. You got you know the retail rate minus two or three cents. Not that big a deal. They made a, lot of, a few other changes to grandfathering, but it wasn't that bad. But since then, the utilities have been lobbying very, very hard to reduce even more the benefits that solar customers get as they contribute their own investment, their own power to the grid. And so net metering 3.0 has been under negotiations for almost two years now, and it looks like it's going to wrap up towards the end of this year or January of 2022. And they're lobbying very hard to make changes to net metering so that the reimbursement rate wouldn't be knocked back by 5% as in net metering too, but more like 50%. So if your rate is 30 cents a kilowatt hour during the day, they're only going to give you 15 cents when you send that power back. And their rationale is, oh, gee, it's kind of affecting the cost for the other customers. But the reality is most of the huge costs in the electricity rates are for long-distance transmission lines because pg and importing power from out of state. Much better to generate that power locally. But they don't get to charge for that, and they don't get that infrastructure. So obviously from a profit standpoint, which we, we talked about, they want to generate the power, they want to reduce the benefits to net metering. So net metering 3.0, cutting the reimbursement rate by 50%, implementing fixed charges for solar customers. So depending on the size of your system, you may pay 20, 30, 40, $50 or more just for the privilege of having solar that you invested in and that's reducing your bill. That's a ripoff. And finally, they want to reduce the grandfathering for existing customers so that all the deals that customers had signed up for in the past, they want to cut back those benefits. Really crooked, really wrong, bad for the environment, bad for customers, bad in any dimension, good for utility executives in the utility. And that's kind of where we're at right now. Okay, we talked about the utility issues ad nauseum, but it's its biggest source of nightmares, a huge goblin waking up in the middle of the night, ghosts and goblins and monsters. But put that aside. 
I also worry about maintaining our high levels of customer satisfaction. For a business that's been in business a long time, it's really important to make sure we do the best we can for all of our customers. And, you know, especially in light of the fights that we're getting from the utilities and their challenges of making it harder, it's really hard to do. We have things like extremely slow permitting processes. I mean, we try and get these done as soon as possible, but there's some jurisdictions that takes six months or longer just to get a permit. Now, there's others that are great, like San Jose, it's immediate, Los Gatos, Saratoga. I mean, they're really good. Even with batteries, they're pretty quick. Then we've got some jurisdictions, and I'll get into that in a minute, to take forever. The fees for permits, now, they should be reasonable, right? You know, $100, $200, $300, commensurate with the amount of work that the city has to do to evaluate the system. But some cities have permit charges that are over two or $3,000 by the time you add in all of the reviews that they do. And that's not including our time. So those fees are, you know, they're a drag on the implementation of solar, the fees and the time. Now, there's also new building code requirements. So things like rooftop setbacks. 20 years ago, we could put solar panels pretty much anywhere on the roof that was sunny, that made sense. Now we're limited in the places we can put the solar. There's requirements on spacing between batteries. So if you want two batteries for your house, we used to put those right next to each other. Now those two batteries have to be three feet apart. And also there's requirements on where the batteries can be located. They can't be located within three feet of a window or a door. So all these policies add to costs. Now, some cities, they're just so bad off the charts that we we don't even work there anymore. I mean, Palo Alto, it's taken us well over a year, five to $10,000 of extra work, and we're still not finished with this customer's system. Now, and it's infuriating. Actually, Palo Alto Daily did an article about this, but they have a reputation, even though it's a great city and there's so many good things going there. The building department is hostile to solar and storage, without a doubt. So I kind of worry about maintaining customer satisfaction. Yes, we're responsible for our work and we do the best we can, but there's externalities that sometimes we can't impact. And we're not perfect, but whenever we do make a mistake, we do everything we can to get it right. All right. Next thing I worry about, not so much anymore, but I'm going to be worrying more next year, is the end of the solar tax credit. The solar tax credit started at 30% and we, specifically our company, lobbied really hard to get it put into effect in 2005 and then extended in 2008. Many, many trips to Washington, D.C. At 30%, huge benefit for the industry. Now the tax credit's kind of stepping down slowly. It's currently at 26%. It's going to go down to 22% in 2023, and it's going to go zero in 2024. So that'll be a bummer, and we're going to be working really hard to extend it, I'm sure, again, because we've had success extending it once before in the past. But, you know, that's a kind of a little bit out there. It's a little bit of a longer term issue. But you know, when you raise the cost of somebody's solar system by 25 or 30 percent, you know, that's going to cut back on the demand. So what can solar installers like us do about these ups and downs in the solar industry? Well, obviously, we're going to continue to push on the ups. Personally, I'm just enjoying the ride. I mean, yes, it, it keeps me up at night. I'm working really hard. But I just really... I really like doing what I'm doing. And almost everybody in our company, we smile. Our our faces are happy when we see customers' electric bill going negative and when there's a blackout and they've got power. So, you know, to my fellow solar solars, enjoy the ride. Try not to worry about the things that are completely unpredictable, the black swan events. And, you know, you kind of look back and say, you know, the well-managed companies, the companies that have been business in a while, they kind of have figured out a way to cope with doing this. And you know, one of the realities is it's not the cheapest price companies that can do that because you just don't have enough assets. You don't have enough experience and background and financial capability if you're always selling at the lowest price to kind of get through some of these downs. And so my view on the best way for other solar companies 
to mitigate their risks is to actively lobby for good solar policies. You can lobby yourself a little bit, and that's fine, and meet with your local congressman and go to D.C. and meet with the, the national congress people. It's kind of hard to do, but they're happy to meet with you, and they're also happy to meet with you in their district offices. But the best way for any solar company to do this most effectively is to become active members of their state association. So we're members of the California Solar Installers Association. Solar installers all over the country should join their member associations. And I've also had the honor of serving as the president of the California Solar Installers Association and as well as a board member of the National Solar Energy Industries Association in D.C. That's where we got the tax credit extended. Our industry, we need to lobby to counter the aggressive, really well-funded lobbying by utilities and fossil fuel companies. And from the standpoint of homeowners and businesses, there's something you can do. I mean, not that you have to join the, the state association, but there's an organization called the Solar Rights Alliance, which was really created and designed. Actually, we, we helped to get it started at CalSAP. But it's designed for homeowners and businesses to kind of have a way to communicate with the policymakers, the government, when there's an issue. And at Solar Rights Alliance, run by a guy named Dave Rosenberg, really, really good. And I would suggest if you're interested, look that up. There's a link on our website so that you can join the Solar Rights Alliance if you're not a solar contractor. So what's the benefit to people in the solar industry? Yeah, we can make a living. It's not going to be fantastic, but we can do okay. But the real benefit is just having the satisfaction of watching people smile when they save money, seeing the system go on, really doing more than our part for improving the environment. And we get silly things like thank you phone calls when there's a blackout and the battery's on and our customers are the only ones in the neighborhood with power, with, with lights, with internet, TV, and a cold fridge. All right, so what can you as a customer do about navigating these challenges in addition to joining something like the Solar Rights Alliance? It's pretty simple. Understand that in California, net metering 3.0 will be here next year. No doubt in my mind that it's going to be less cost effective if you turn on your solar system in 2022, probably first or second quarter, under net metering three, than if you get it installed and activated under net metering two in 2021. So just get started with your installation right now because there's going to be a delay at the utility and they can you know hold on to applications so that they force you into a worse net metering method. Second, understand that the primary reasons for these bad solar and storage policies, it's not random. They're direct attacks from utilities, primarily PG&E here in Northern California. And they're trying to prevent customers from generating their own cheaper electricity and and their own more reliable electricity. That's it. Really simple. It's capitalism. It's economics. But it's not really capitalism because they're monopolies. It's like government monopoly. So what you can do is support politicians who are not in the pockets of utilities. That's basically it. You know, support politicians that are supporting you as a homeowner and a business owner from putting solar storage on your roof. And then finally, work with a company that's been through some of these solar ups and downs and has a good local reputation. It's kind of, and we're going to wrap up today's show and I hope to get a good night's sleep tonight. That's all the time we have on this week's Energy Show. Thanks to all of our listeners for tuning in. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always go to our website at cinnamon.energy and listen to the podcasts.